Welcome to the In All Things podcast. Here, we talk about everything from friendship and personalities to contentment and faith. Our goal, to encourage you to seek Christ in all things. Hey, how's it going? I'm your host, Sierra. Let's imagine you're in my living room and dive into real conversation. Happy Thursday, everybody, or whatever day you're listening to this podcast on. Welcome back to our conversation. The fruits of the Spirit are characteristics that Christians often strive for. We kind of look at them as things that we need to achieve. And they're outlined in Galatians. We see them as godly traits that we need to have. But the thing that we miss is the word fruit, which means the result of. So these nine fruits that we seem to be striving for are actually what come as a natural result of our growing faith. And it's the Holy Spirit that causes our faith to grow, hence the fruit of the Spirit, okay? Um, We have no ability to achieve these traits. They are a spiritual fruit, and as such, we need the Spirit to produce these fruits within us. As I began to outline this episode, I was just going to do a brief overview on each of the fruits. But as I began, I kind of found that I had a lot to say about each fruit. So this is probably going to be a multi-episode series of sorts. Don't worry, it's not going to be nine episodes long or anything like that. But basically what we're going to do is doing some smaller word studies of these characteristics and what they are from a biblical standpoint. And how they're not just emotions or disciplines. They are God-given fruits that are present in our lives as proof that the Spirit is alive within us and sanctifying us to be more like Christ. I don't usually read long passages on the podcast. Um, I know that can be a little dry. But I do feel like hearing the whole context to this topic is really important. And so I'm going to today. And this is found in Galatians 5, verses 13 through 26. It says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. We hear in this passage a very distinct 
contrast. Those between the desires of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit. Paul, who is the one who wrote Galatians, describes the desires of the flesh. Did you hear that list? He went on about it. It was sexual immorality, jealousy, anger, witchcraft, idolatry, selfishness, and the list went on. And Paul very clearly says that the flesh contradicts the spirit and the spirit contradicts the flesh. And if we are led by the spirit, we can't just do whatever we want. Did you catch that in there? So here's what we can learn from this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These nine fruits of the spirit don't really come naturally to us. We have to intentionally choose these every day with the help of the Lord. As I mentioned, I learned so much, um, honestly, as I was going through these and learning about each of these fruits in depth. And I'm really excited to share these with you. I hope that you find it as interesting as I did. This will probably be a two or three part series because even on a very basic level, there is a lot to share. So the first mentioned is love. And you might be thinking, um, that kind of does come naturally to me. Well, love to those who are easy to love. Yes, it's yes, it is love, but that's not the complete picture of love. We are called to love as God loves. And that, as mentioned before, cannot be achieved on our own doing. This kind of love has to be led by the Holy Spirit. To start, we really need to understand the language that is being used. The Bible was not written in English, so it's really important that as we're studying the Bible that we need to find out the definitions of words in their original language. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and the New Testament was in Greek. And needless to say, the English translation, the English language, really falls short in a lot of ways. For example, we have the word love, and Greek has four different words for love, each of them meaning something different. So when we're reading our Bibles and we come across the word love, we need to kind of dive deeper and figure out, okay, which love is this referring to? The first kind of love is eros. And this is a Greek word for sensual or romantic love. And this word is actually not found in the New Testament. But if, if it was in the Bible at all, we'd probably see that in Songs of Solomon. Um, but that one's not, it's not used in the Bible. The word storge describes family love, like love between siblings or a parent and child. Um, but this word is actually also not found in the Bible. Then we come to the two a little more well-known words. The first one is phileo. And this is the type of intimate love in the Bible that Christians are called to have towards each other. Um, so it's not a romantic love, but it, in these types of relationships, there is like an emotional bond that exists. Um, so it's loving each other. You know, it's how you would love a friend, probably. And then finally, you have agape love. This is the highest type of love. And this is also in the Bible. It really defines God's immeasurable and incomparable love for us as humans. And it's the divine love that comes from God. So agape love is perfect, it's unconditional, it's sacrificial, and it's pure. 
Okay, now that we know some Greek, let's go back to the fruits of the Spirit. The love that is mentioned in the fruits of the Spirit is the agape type love. Unconditional, sacrificial, and pure. This kind of love is not a feeling. It is a choice. When we come to know Christ's love for us, his agape love for us, we begin to understand how we are called to love others. And I don't want to lie about this. This is hard to do. Loving your kids with an agape love, probably not difficult. Loving your parents with an agape love, more times than not, it's not difficult. Your friends, mm, just depends on our relationship, right? And strangers, yeah, that, that's pretty difficult. That's usually how it goes. But when we allow the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, to refine us, to grow us, we will start to see others and love others as Christ does. To help us get a little better glimpse of what this word means, let's look at some other verses in the Bible that that refer to this kind of love. There are two very well-known verses in the Bible that refer to agape love. The first is John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And Romans 5:8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. These verses are basically the definition of agape love. God sacrificed his only son so that we could uh, spend eternity with him. The 1 Corinthians 13 passage that is often cited at weddings also refers to agape love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. And so on. You know, it doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil. Love never fails. This brings a pretty strong commitment, doesn't it, if it's being read at weddings? Um, If we are going to love our spouses in the way that Christ loves us, it requires sacrifice, dedication, and a lot of forgiveness, and maybe a bit of the Eros love. In the book of John, Jesus gives an instruction. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And then in, uh, similarly, in Matthew 5, we see that he says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There are dozens of verses that use the word agape. Some are referring to Christ's love for us. Others are describing what agape love is, and others yet are outlining what is expected of believers who are filled with the Holy Spirit, kind of like the ones I read before. What I really think is interesting is there's a passage in John 21 that contrasts phileo love and agape love, and it's an exchange between Jesus and his disciple Simon Peter. It says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt Because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. 
Jesus said, feed my sheep. In this passage, Jesus is asking Peter over and over if he loves him. And if so, to take care of his sheep, which is referring to his people. Jesus wants Peter to disciple more believers as Jesus had discipled him and the other 11. Every time that Jesus asks, do you love me? He's asking, do you agape me? And every time that Peter responds, he says, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Two different kinds of love there. Jesus wanted to make sure that Peter understood the importance of the task that he was assigning him and that what it required. It required that sacrifice. Remember, it's, it's sacrificial. It's pure. It's unconditional. But in order to do so, Peter's love and dedication needed to grow for the Lord because clearly he did not have the kind of love that was required. Joy is the next one mentioned, and this can be a little difficult to define sometimes. Is it happiness? Is it a positive attitude? Is it more than that? Essentially, joy is an attitude of our hearts. Yes, it's a positive attitude, but it's so much more than just your day-to-day positive attitude. Many of the verses that refer to joy in the Bible are when talking about someone who is witnessing or experiencing God's work. Maybe a miracle happened or he, he saved somebody um, when he's working in somebody's life or when his presence was either felt or seen. A word to describe how people feel in those moments is joy. Luke 15, 7 says, Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. That would be God saving somebody, right? And another example would be in Philippians where Paul is talking about complete joy when believers are united in Christ. Or in Acts, when it talks about Paul and Barnabas traveling through countries telling believers how more Gentiles had been saved and the reaction was joyfulness. But then in James 1, we actually read about joy in a different perspective. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James is encouraging believers to gain a new perspective when going through hardships. I'm sure we can all imagine a point in time in our lives where we have been through a hardship to various degrees, but we can all agree that it's difficult to go through them with joy. But James is pretty clear here that these trials are are to test our faith in order to produce perseverance. And then that perseverance allows us to gain maturity in our faith. He goes through this domino effect of events to make one point. Our trials are for a purpose. And while that is extremely difficult to grasp or even agree with, understanding it gives us a new perspective. In 1 Peter, it's explained that rejoicing through trials and hardships result in stronger faith as we begin to press into the Lord for guidance and comfort. If you're an athlete training for a race or a competition of some sort, you have to train, and training is difficult. The book of Romans talks about this. You'll go through the pain um, and gaining muscle and work hard to gain endurance. Trials are like spiritual training. And when we train correctly, 
by depending on God to get us through and remaining joyful and hopeful in him, we will have strong and invincible faith. Peace is one of my favorite gifts from the Holy Spirit. I see two kinds of peace, honestly, in the Bible, and one is with others, and the other one is within ourselves. Romans 12.18 says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Very simple. We are called to live at peace with others, um, which really connects well with the fruit of love. Right? If we are loving others, we are not starting wars or causing hurt to other people. Um, I think peace with others extends to our response to other people. If we are hurt, do we take revenge or even do we have the desire to take revenge? Do we want to fight and argue it out to make our side heard? Or do we calmly explain our perspective and offer a presence of peace? Do we offer forgiveness even when it's not asked for? Christ is, once again, the perfect example of peace. He's referred to as the Prince of Peace in Isaiah. This form of peace, the one um, that's talking about our relationships with others, is seen a lot in the Old Testament. Um, The Hebrew word for peace is shalom, which we may have heard that before. When that word is used, it's often talking about relationships between people, relationships between nations, or the relationship between God and people. In the New Testament, which brings us back to the Greek language, the word most often used for peace is Irene. And this means rest or tranquility. The way that we hear peace talked about in the New Testament gives us um a good glimpse of what it looks like within our lives. In 2 Thessalonians, it says, Now may the God of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. So we learn that peace is given by the Lord as he is with us, which makes perfect sense because we know that when we place our trust in Christ, his Holy Spirit comes upon us and then is now with us always. In Philippians, it says, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's one of my favorite verses. This isn't a verse that's referring to how we interact with other people, right? It's a state of our hearts and our minds. I've talked about this quite a few times before. The Holy Spirit leads and guides us in our lives. When we are at a crossroads and we are trying to make a decision, the Holy Spirit will give us a peace in making the right choice. Or sometimes we may feel unsettled in a situation. For me, that would, that would often mean that the Holy Spirit is telling me to get out of that situation. He's leading me away by not providing the peace. Um, most people will just call this like a gut feeling. But when we have the Holy Spirit as our guide, that's who it is. Christ also gives us a few instructions as how we are to live at peace. In Colossians, it says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. And in Matthew, it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And in Romans 8, 6, it says, The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. At the beginning of the episode, we read the Galatians passage where it contrasted a life of the flesh versus a life led by the Spirit. And this Romans verse also gives that contrast 
A mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. I know these were really brief overviews and there were just the th- those three for today. I hope you enjoyed learning about these uh, first three fruits of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, and peace. As I mentioned, this will be a two or three part series so that we can cover all of these character traits. Um, so stay tuned for the next one, which it will not be next week. Next episode, I have my friends Lindsay and Mike joining me for a conversation on marriage. And I am so excited for you all to hear that. So stay tuned for that. um, And then be looking out for the next parts of the Fruits of the Spirit episodes. Have a wonderful week, everybody. Thank you for joining today's conversation. I hope this was an encouraging episode as you continue to walk with the Lord. If it was, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. This helps with the app's algorithm and allows In All Things to be accessible to even more people. Share with your friends and give us a follow on Instagram and Facebook. You can find us at In All Things Pod on both of those and visit our website at inallthingspodcast.com. See you next time.